You are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. I'm going to ask you two important questions, and I want you to be prepared to mentally answer them. Think back to when you were a youth. Did you like to party? Today, do you like to party? Now, I want you to make sure that you've thought through those questions because some of you didn't just mentally answer them. You were tempted to blurt them out loud. But remember who's seated next to you. But here's a surprise. Did you know that Jesus Christ likes to party? Did any of you know that? He likes to party. And in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24, we're going to take a look at what I call the party parables. There's two party parables that we will look at, which are just two of many throughout the Gospels. So turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We're in the midst of a summer series called The Greatest Stories. And I'm sure you would agree with me that Luke's parables are some of the greatest stories, I would argue the greatest stories ever told. So look with me at verses one and two. This is where Luke sets the scene. And this scene will carry us through the entire passage. Luke writes, it happened that when he went into the house, this is Jesus, when Jesus went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. Now make a mental note of that phrase. They were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Now that is not a sleeping disorder. It is actually where your body dangerously and abnormally swells up with fluid. Here we have Jesus going into the home of one of the leading Pharisees. Some would argue a member of the Sanhedrin. Now Jesus loved to go into people's homes because he loved to party. Jesus loved to go into people's homes no matter who they were in order to engage them around spiritual questions and spiritual discussions. And what's interesting is, while Jesus did not have a home, he would never turn down an invitation. Even if it came from a man who was a member of a group that were Jesus' greatest enemies. Jesus cared enough about people to offer them the opportunity to meet him and to believe in him. Now, I said just moments ago, we need to note that phrase, they were watching him closely. Why does Luke bring this out? The text doesn't tell us, so I need to be very careful in what I say. But I would argue, Jesus is being set up. The Pharisees are trying to trap him. The man with dropsy is a plant. Now, while he could have come by, perhaps, this is a leading Pharisee's home. And he would not have been invited unless it was a setup. A setup in order to test Jesus. 
So what the Pharisees are hoping is they can trip him up in some rabbinic law. But Jesus turns the test on them. We'll see that in verses three and four. And Jesus answered. Was there a question asked? If you look at verses one and two, there's no question asked. But that's because Jesus understands what they're doing. They're setting the trap. But Jesus is going to set his own trap. So he answers a question that the Pharisees never asked. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers, those were the scribes, the biblical scholars, and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now what we've said is, whenever Jesus is asked a question or whenever he decides to answer a question that was not posed, he often, not always, but he often asks a question of his own. I love that about Jesus. In verse four we read, but they kept silent. The Pharisees and scribes, the scholars of the day, they had nothing to say. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. Here we have Jesus prepared to pose a question. And the reason that he poses this question is he decides that the best defense is a good offense. And he poses a question that's going to make it impossible for them to respond. Now Jesus also does something beautiful. You can see in verse four that he heals the man. He seizes him, he takes hold of him, he heals him, and then he sends him on his way so that he can deal with the religious leaders. One of the sad tragedies of scripture, and it is found right here, is that Jesus performed miracles in the very presence of people, particularly the religious leaders who were supposedly looking for a Messiah. And yet here, no mind or heart is changed. On the contrary, they seem to reject Jesus all the more. Now this is instructive because many times we think the message is not enough. We need miracles. And if I could just work some type of miracle or if God could bring about a miracle for my loved one or my irreligious coworker or neighbor, then that person would believe. I would argue that that's often not the case. People don't believe by miracles alone. It's perhaps miracles and the message, but more often than not, it's the message. So what we need to pray today is, God, give me confidence in the word of God. Give me confidence in the gospel, because the gospel is sufficient to change minds and hearts. Jesus isn't done yet. He's just warming up. Look with me at verses five and six that finish this first section. And he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. This is incredible. Jesus to the religious leaders, zero. I mean, you talk about the silencer. 
We've discussed this at crossroads when basketball players and football players, occasionally baseball players, will give the silencer, after a home run, after a touchdown, after a slam dunk, they will silence the crowd. Well, that's what Jesus did. He gave the ultimate silencer to the religious leaders. They cannot speak. Why can't they speak? Because if they answer him, since he has set up the perfect test, they will have to acknowledge that compassion trumps their religious convictions, their religious preferences, their extra biblical rules, regulations, and religion. Jesus says, each and every one of you, you would pull out your son, you would pull out an ox, even if it's the Sabbath day. And Jesus is no doubt thinking, you know full well, I've already healed three individuals on the Sabbath. You know that, and this is the fourth. And you're trying to set me up. How can a man whose health is so debilitating not deserve compassion, even though it's the Sabbath? Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around, Jesus said elsewhere. Jesus prioritizes compassion over religious ritual. Now in verses seven through 14, we remain in the same scene. But what Jesus does is rather odd. I mean, Jesus has offended everyone at this party. Now, it was right for him to do so, wasn't it? We had a bunch of spiritual, pious Pharisees that were trying to trick him. They were trying to set him up. So Jesus, he turns the tables on them. Yes, I I couldn't resist that. A party, tables. Let's see what Jesus does in verse seven. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed, highlight that word noticed, when Jesus noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table If you mark in your Bibles, put a little V1 next to verse seven. Because remember how we talked about the Pharisees who were watching Jesus closely. They were scoping him out. They were trying to trip him up. Well, now the tables are turned and Jesus is watching them. He is noticing everything that they do, but particularly that they are seeking out the best seats at the party. They want the seats of honor. In biblical times, often these parties, these banquets, had a V-shaped table. And the host would be at the point of the V. And often what we would find is the guests of honor would come late. I think today we call that fashionably late. And what would happen is, those particular invited guests would try to get their seats closest to the host because those were the seats of honor. But you can imagine the challenge when the host and sometimes many of the fancy-dancy guests arrive late and you are seated perhaps where you shouldn't be. Jesus tells a parable, a party parable in verses eight through 11. He says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. 
for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Now circle the number 11 before we read it. If you mark in your Bibles, this is an important verse. It's one that's repeated throughout the New Testament, either verbatim or in a paraphrased form. You can guess that this parable is about humility. Listen to verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. When I first read this account as a child, I immediately thought of the Seattle Mariners. <laughs> I, I kid you not. How many of you remember the kingdom where the Mariners used to play? Some of you. There were three levels. 100, 200, 300. Now, if you were unfortunate enough to sit in the 300 level, you know that those are the nosebleeds. I mean, you're up there with the Lord himself in the heavenlies. And you bring your binoculars. You're ready to try to watch the game as best you can. But after the game starts, your eyes become heat-seeking missiles. And they begin to move to and fro, looking for available seats as close to the field as possible. And you begin to stealthily make your way down to whatever seat you find. And there is this fear, this big fear, the fear. What if an usher asks for my ticket? And you try to get to your seat and then you sit down and then you start having these terrible thoughts. What, what if the owner of this ticket arrives late? What if an usher has to come and remove me from the seat? And you, you can hardly enjoy the game because you have this fear and it's nerve wracking and it's scary. How do I seem to know so much about this? <laughs> I mean, it's a mystery. <laughs> we are wired in such a way that we want so badly to be honored because we're not prone to be humble as human beings. That's true of Christians, that's true of non-Christians. Pride and independence is a struggle for all of us. So what is Jesus saying here? If we just simply consider the parable, what he's saying is, don't take the best seats. Give your seat or your potential seat to someone else. I mean, we call this common courtesy. We're not even talking about Christianity here. Christianity means we should go above and beyond common courtesy. We should be gentlewomen and gentlemen. We should consider others better than ourselves. But I think there's also another subtle implication. We shouldn't seek to hobnob 
with those who are the A-list type of people. I mean, if the Lord opens doors, wonderful. But some of us, we like to name drop. We like to hang out with people of wealth, influence, and power. And so we'll do whatever it takes to get close to those types of people. And Jesus would say, they're just going to disappoint you. I mean, don't try to hobnob with these people. There is the implication that we ought to humble ourselves. And when we humble ourselves, which means to go low, Jesus in time will exalt us. But as we've said as recently as last week, often the exaltation, often the reward, it doesn't come in this life like we think. Some of us are looking for immediate gratification. Jesus, I did this for you. I gave up my seat. I humbled myself. I considered others better than myself. Where's my reward? And Jesus is saying, just wait. You may be waiting until eternity, but you will have a reward. Just be patient. Can you imagine if Crossroads was a church where everyone came to worship, or to their community group, or to their service, with the goal of ministering to other people. I want anyone and everyone that I interact with, that you interact with, to hear us listening to them. To hear us caring for them, to feel us caring for them, to see us sacrificing, literally giving up the best seats, which as we all know are in the back, not in the front. Why is it that church is the only place you have to come early to fight for the back row? I mean, you're all jockeying for the back row. No one wants to be up front where the spittle flies. <laughs> Jesus wants us to be a church that is a caring community that is all about first impressions. He wants us to care for the guests. He wants us to care for those that don't frequent church like you may. He wants us to bend over backwards for others. Now, verses 12 through 14 are powerful because Jesus is not done. He has just finished speaking to all the invited guests. He's offended all of them. I mean, I can just see them seething. And yet I can see Jesus with a twinkle in his eye. I can't help but think Jesus is laughing. <laughs> After the parable he just told, and now what he's going to do to the host Jesus is going to speak to that Pharisee, that religious leader who invited him. Listen to these words, verses 12 through 14. And Jesus also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or notice rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return and that will be your repayment. This is what we call the hospitality exchange. Where if you have me over, then I'm obligated to have you over. If I have you over, then you're obligated to have me over. It's the hospitality exchange. But yet Jesus has something else in mind. Look at verse 13 and 14. But when you give a reception, a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, rewarded, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid 
at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus says three times, hospitality often has to do with repayment. But the best kind of hospitality is not the hospitality exchange, but the hospitality gift, hospitality that's given, hospitality that doesn't expect anything in return. Stop and think about your hospitality over the last several years. We can't consider the last year and a half or so, but we can consider the last few years, the last several years. Do you invite people into your home that have less income and less possessions than you do? Do you invite people into your home that have some form of disability? Do you invite people into your home that are just plain difficult, whether they are believers or unbelievers? Here's a worse question. Have you been inviting anyone into your home over the last several years? Or is your home your haven? Is it that place where you have built your castle and you want to keep the riffraff out? Jesus says, there is a reward for those that are especially hospitable. And he says, if you bring in those that can never repay you, those who are disabled, and you know they can't have you into their home, there's a reward for you at the resurrection of the righteous. He says you will be repaid. This is his third use of repayment or repaid. In other words, what we've done for the least of them, Matthew 25, Jesus says he will repay us, but when will the repayment come? Okay, I guess we need to look at the text again because some of you don't have your finger in your Bibles. Do you see it? Verse 14. We will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is a reference to Christ's return and our eternal reward. Hospitality is a way that we can actually build the church and we can also store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. Now there is an obvious question that some of you more astute people are wondering. Keith, are you saying that Jesus doesn't want me to have any family or friends into my home? My in-laws are here with me this weekend and we are having an amazing time. They're here in church today. Am I in sin? No. This is what Jesus would want for me. This is what Jesus would want for my in-laws. Jesus is talking primarily about the fact that we want to elevate ourselves and diminish others. In this context, he's saying the way that you can ultimately gain eternal reward and honor Jesus is by ensuring that in your hospitality, you're including others outside of family and friends. Elsewhere, Jesus would say, even the Pharisees do that. The Pharisees love those who love them. That doesn't take any skill. 
What about opening up your home, the home that the Lord entrusted to you, the home that you're supposed to be a steward of to those who may need to be in your home, who may need your love, who may need to see a family, who may need to experience Christian warmth. One day you'll be repaid because God is no man's debtor. Can you say awkward? The silence in this party must have been astonishing. I mean, I'm sure the Pharisees are even looking down at their sandals. They're not even looking up. The host has been humiliated. The invited guests have been brought low. I mean, Jesus, he doesn't pick and choose favorites. He goes after everyone. Talk about a party pooper. I mean, this is... If it wasn't Jesus Christ, we would all have a problem with this. But Jesus is not trying to schmooze. He's not trying to kiss up. He wants to help people become spiritually well. And he'll do whatever it takes. Now what happens when there's an awkward moment? Or in this case, awkward moments? Someone has to speak. That's what always happens in the Bible and in our experience. We're not going to let awkwardness linger. So look with me at verse 15. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, he's speaking to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is a Pharisee who blurts out, Jesus, be impressed with me. Be impressed with me. I'm worthy. In fact, we, we as Pharisees, the religious elite, we are worthy. He's trying to actually remove some of the tension and awkwardness, and in so doing, he takes the opportunity to exalt himself. Oh, mercy. What is Jesus going to do with this gentleman who is self-righteous, who is self-assured that he will be at the eternal party? In verses 16 and 17, Jesus speaks to this man and he gives the second party parable. A man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. In my Bible, I highlighted a big dinner. I highlighted many in verse 16. Because as we will figure out, the one who is throwing this party, the man, it is the man. It is God himself, the creator and sustainer of the universe and all humanity. And this party is going to be lavish. It's going to be vast. And many are going to be invited. And you are invited. And your loved ones are invited. And your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors, they're invited. Now you may be saying, Keith, I'm, I'm just not convinced that God is a partier. I mean, you're making him sound like a party animal or something. I don't expect you to turn here, but I'm going to read something to you from Deuteronomy 14, verse 26. One of those verses that maybe you haven't spent much time in 
except perhaps in your Bible read-through and you never question this passage. In Israel, once a year, something took place where 10% of your income was given so that the people of Israel could party hardy. I mean, party in a way that we couldn't imagine and everyone in Israel was invited. I'll just read you one verse. Deuteronomy 14, verse 26. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires. Woo! For oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. Bet you didn't know that was in your Bible. Or whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So all of Israel comes together and they party on a particular day where they bring a portion of their income, 10%, and once a year they have a party, a feast, a banquet. Why? Because God is a God who loves to party with his people. The slave goes out, announces the dinner is coming, people RSVP, because when you're given an invitation, you RSVP, not like we do at church where somehow we fail to RSVP. They RSVP'd in biblical times. They wanted to party. Some of us don't like to party, apparently. But what happened is, since there are no clocks, and it would take a long time to prepare the meal, the slave or the servant had to go out again and say, it's time to eat. Come on, everybody. Let's party. I mean, he's getting excited, I'm sure, too. But this is what happens. Verses 18 through 20 tell us something tragic takes place. But they all began alike to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Would you ever buy a plot of land and not have it inspected first? Jesus said, this is an excuse. In verse 19, another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. This is a very wealthy man to have five yoke of oxen. Scholars would guesstimate he has about 250 acres. And this is at a time when people didn't own land. The first one said to him, I'm sorry, uh, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Can you imagine buying five yoke of oxen and not testing them out first? Can you imagine calling your spouse and saying, I have just purchased five used cars and I'm going to go now and see if any of them run. But here we have what could be a very good excuse. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. Well, I said last Sunday that Austin and Karina Kwame came to church right after their honeymoon, and they are here again today. Can we give them a round of applause? This sounds like a great excuse, but here's the truth. This man knew he was getting married. Unless he really didn't want to go to the banquet and he proposed or had an arranged marriage pronto. The man knew. Furthermore, if he just got married, why not bring his wife? This is an excuse as well. I want you to imagine that you decided 
that you would have a 4th of July barbecue and you were going to invite a whole lot of people and you purchased the meat, the condiments, you made salads and desserts, you purchased all kinds of drinks. You cleaned your house, you even brought in professional cleaners because you had never had a barbecue with so many people. And what you made sure of was you got people to commit to being at this party. And let's say it was this afternoon. And right now, your cell phone is blowing up. And this afternoon, more texts and calls come in and every single person cancels on you. Oh my. You wanna talk about losing your sanctification. You wanna talk about unrighteous indignation, you'd be ticked. I mean, you would be irate because you'd be thinking about all the money that you spent, all the time you had invested. And almost anyone would say, eh, you have every right to be angry. But this is not the party that God is throwing. The party that God's throwing is not a 4th of July barbecue. It's a party with eternal ramifications. That's why we have to pay careful attention to verse 21. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry. I highlighted that. We're talking about God the Father here. I'll prove that in verse 24. The host became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Here we have the same people that we talked about earlier in verse 13. To understand this well, you've got the invited guest list and that's including all of the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, the religious elite. All of them make excuses, none of them seem to wanna come. So the host says, host being Jesus, let's invite all the Jewish people who are considered outcasts. They're ceremonial impure. They can't come to the temple and worship. Let's invite them. Because in God's party, the outcasts are not cast out. They are the welcomed guests. Those that we would not want at our party. Those are the ones God especially loves. And there's room at his party for those that are considered social outcasts. In verses 22 and 23, the slave says, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. Wow. So what's the master going to say? Verse 23. Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them. Compel them to come in. Now watch this. The purpose clause. The purpose in compelling people. So that, so that my house may be filled. My house may be filled. Do you know who Jesus is talking about here? He's gone through all the religious people in Israel. He's gone through all the other people in Israel, those that are disabled. Now he goes out to the Gentiles. He goes out to those people like you and me, the real riffraff. 
he includes us in his party. Why? Because everyone else said no. But yet we know that God has planned this from eternity past. I love the fact that he finds us on the highways, in the hedges, and we're the ones that are supposed to be compelled to come. Because most of us would not believe that we would be invited or we shouldn't believe we should be invited. Because God the Father loves his chosen people, the Jews. And he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. That's you and me. That's Gentiles. The Jewish people said no. We said yes. One group was invited. One group was brought. One group was compelled to come. We have the responsibility, Crossroads, to invite people, to invite religious people, to invite people who have different religious worldviews, who are members of cults. We need to invite them. But we also need to bring those who are disabled because they can't come on their own often. We need to go to them. We need to help them come into the church. We need to be prepared to minister to them. And then there are others, Gentiles, many who are atheistic and agnostic, who are spiritually hardened to the gospel. We need to compel them to come. We need to go after them. The vision of CBC is building disciples who bring Jesus to our world. We are not after inviting people to church as our means of connecting with people. Our goal is to go outside of these church walls and be the church and to share Jesus with anyone and everyone we possibly can and then to bring disciples that we have led to faith in Christ to Crossroads so that Crossroads might build them up. We take the initiative. Well, what if we don't take the initiative? What if we don't fulfill our vision slogan? God's grace is invincible. Write that down. God's grace is invincible. God can raise up people to Abraham. Matthew 3. God doesn't need us. He has promised his house will be full with us or without us. The question is, how will we enjoy the kingdom if we're not sharing Jesus in the here and now? How will we enjoy the then and there? I mean, it's going to be bliss. It's going to be glorious because those of us who have trusted in Christ, we're going to be there. But what will it feel like to know that we never shared Christ? We never tried to compel people or bring people or even invite people to come. Jesus wants us to take this very, very seriously. His house will be filled. We have, filled. We have the opportunity to partner with him. Jesus closes out his parable in a very interesting way. He's been talking about a slave and a master. He's been using the third person, but now he says, for I, first person, I tell you, 
plural, all of you. None of these men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. This is rabbinic hyperbole. Jesus is not saying that there's no Pharisees, there's no religious people that will populate his party. Nicodemus, the original Nick at night. Joseph of Arimathea. John chapter 12, the secret disciples who were Pharisees. There are plenty of Pharisees that believed, but there are far more that didn't. They will not be in the kingdom. You and I have the responsibility to RSVP for God's kingdom party. RSVP. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you need to RSVP right now. You need to say, Jesus, I want to be a part of your kingdom. I want to party, Jesus. Not just in this life, but for all of eternity. I want to be with you and with those who love you. I want to be in a perfect environment. I want to have a glorified body where sin is no longer a part of my existence. I want eternal fellowship with the eternal God. RSVP. Acknowledge your sin. Believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. But some of us need to continually RSVP. We need to say, Lord, I want to be a part of your kingdom and I want to live out the kingdom in the nasty here and now. I want to make a difference. I want to minister to people. I want to have compassion for people. I want to love you the way that you deserve to be loved. Here's the irony of this parable. Jesus portrays God's simultaneous anger and mercy. God is actually angry when people refuse to go to his eternal party. But God has mercy on all of humanity by giving us the opportunity to believe in him. When you stand before Jesus Christ one day, there will be no excuse. You won't be able to come up with any excuse. In fact, my best guess is you will not even speak. You will be on your face, prostrate before the living God. But if you could speak, there would be no excuses. Especially for those of us who are part of Crossroads Bible Church. RSVP for God's kingdom party. RSVP today. Keep on RSVPing because you have a kingdom mentality and you want to be used by God powerfully in this life before you hit the kingdom. And let's get ready to party. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who loves to party with your people. Lord, we welcome you here in our presence to give us that kind of jubilation, that kind of celebration, Lord, that we need to be reminded you're not a stern God who is always disappointed with your people. You love your people because they are in Christ. Help us to understand that you are a God who sings over us. You are a God who celebrates us and help us to want to celebrate you and worship you and help others come into your party. Again, if you're here today and you know you've never trusted in Christ, give him your sin and in exchange he will give you his righteousness, his perfection, and you can become a part of his kingdom. Father, thank you so much for the person and work of Jesus Christ who has made it possible for us to have an eternal relationship with you. 
We cannot imagine this life without you. And we want to live our lives in the here and now with a view to the then and there. Help us to be kingdom-minded disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.